Hello, and welcome back to Flock to Faculty. This is episode two of a podcast where we learn a little bit more about the faculty of Washington College here in beautiful Chestertown on the eastern shore of Maryland on the bank of the Chester River. I'm David Hall, your host. In this episode, we've got a really great interview for you. We're going to hear from Caddy Putnam Rankin, the chair of the business management department. She's really wonderful and doing great work here. Uh, she has a, a unique and I think very powerful perspective on business management, particularly with her focus on socially responsible cultures within the business world. And we'll hear, also hear some uh, really great things about how she's setting up her students for success in finding their passion and bringing that into their research. Let's go ahead and, and begin. Um, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. My name is Caddy Putnam Rankin. I'm the chair of the business management department. I've been at Washington College for, this is my seventh year. And the interesting, I guess, part about me being in business management is my PhD is in sociology. And so we tend to think most people in business management have accounting or finance or marketing or something, but I, I come from a little bit of a different background. So I also think I see business a little differently than some of our other faculty, which is I think a blessing and a curse, <laughs> but, but we all work really well together. Yeah, and that's something I definitely want to ask about a little bit um, as we go on. So just to start off at the very beginning, just to get a little bit of, of your history, before you were an academic, before you came to Washington College, um, what kind of other lives did you have? What other jobs, um, what, what things did you do before you, you knew you were headed this direction? Yeah, so actually out of college, I went to Connecticut College, which is a small liberal arts college, very similar to Washington College. And I went to work at a law firm in Washington, D.C. I thought I wanted to go into human rights law. I had had a wonderful senior research experience, not so dissimilar from what we do with our students, where, but I got to really design it, and I went to uh, Mali, Africa, and studied female genital cutting and worked with nine different women's organizations there. And so I really thought when I graduated, I'm gonna go into human rights law. So I went and I worked at a big law firm on K Street. And I quickly realized that lawyers don't have a great balance of <laughs> family and work life. And not, I'm sure some lawyers have figured it out, but uh, where I was working, they had not. <laughs> so I also at that time went back to my alma mater, went back to Connecticut College for a reunion. And I had coffee with an anthropology professor and kind of said, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I don't know where I'm going. And he said, you should become a professor. So <laughs> he said it. And so I said, okay, well, maybe that's what I'll try. So I did that. <laughs> Oh, that, that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the perfect mentorship story, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I try to strive now to be that good of a mentor, yes. <laughs> if, if we could all be that successful where we say, you should do this, and it, and it and happens. it happens, <laughs> So tell us a little bit more, like, how do you go from sociology through uh, human rights to, to business management? That's, that's a... That's a one of the things we're seeing very regularly is nobody has a straight path. Right. And so you've got a, a very curvy one. Yeah, it, it, it is curvy, but I see a clear path. Mm -hmm. So um, I was always interested in how organizations create change. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in my undergraduate and I was studying female genital uh, cutting, I was working with women's organizations that were trying to empower women and educate women in Mali to change the trajectory and to change the norms that were there. And so then I went into human, thought I was going into human rights law, but again, from the perspective that organizations can be resources for people. And when I went to graduate school, I kept focusing on organizations and organizational change and really looked at, started looking at how for-profit organizations can contribute to social good. And I looked at corporate social responsibility in the mutual fund industry, partly because I come from a family business in the mutual fund industry. Mm -hmm. And I knew the industry pretty well. And I thought at the time, you know, there was a lot of talk. This was a little bit early on, not, not really early on, but earlier than we are today in terms of 
investment vehicles that were doing socially responsible things mm -hmm. in terms of our environmental, our social, our governance issues. And so I studied that and looked at the different ways basically mutual funds were contributing to social and environmental causes or concerns. And then most organizational sociologists, so I studied a lot of organizational theory, that was my concentration, my specialization area. Most organizational sociologists end up in business programs because of the background and the theory and the application it can have for strategic management and organizational behavior and understanding how organizations work. And so when I went on the job market, I worked previously at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore mm -hmm. in a graduate program there in organizational leadership. But then the position here came open and it was a, a better fit for me. Yeah. So I, I want to take a quick little digression here. Yep. Um, when you mentioned about the mutual funds um, and having kind of a socially responsible, um, I, I don't know, portfolio is the right mm -hmm. uh, word to use. This is something that I know very little about, but I have I've heard tangentially. This this seems to be a huge thing now, where there are funds and portfolios that are specifically, at least marketed as. Yep. You know, this is this is the green portfolio. Correct. Is that really what's going on? So yeah, there's a lot in the news today. I was actually talking to my class about it today because the, the SEC, so one of the government bodies that is trying to regulate the industry, is saying all of these funds are claiming to be socially responsible, right. but we don't really have a way to assess that. And so in the next sort of year or so, I think we're going to see a lot of conversations about how the regulators are going to come in and say. Yeah. Prove it, you know, <laughs> basically. Like, right. you can't just say that you're socially responsible. And and going back, so I wrote my dissertation, I think, I in 2011. That's kind of what I was looking at, not just in funds that were creating these socially responsible mutual funds, but also in the ways people were talking about social responsibility. Mm -hmm. And at the time, everyone I interviewed said, well, everyone has a different definition of what yeah. it means to be socially responsible. And to be honest, that's still true today, right. uh, not only in the mutual fund industry, but in any industry. So in class today, we were talking about how does you know the NFL define social responsibility versus Apple versus Walt Disney, you know, yeah. and it really depends on what stakeholders are thinking about and what are the topics that are going on in right. their in their industry. Well, and I imagine that's a brilliant kind of PR position because you can say you're socially responsibility mm -hmm. responsible, but that is still dependent on who is making the investments, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so so a good example, we were talking today about BP. Mm. So BP says now today that they're very into renewable energy and environmentally friendly, right? They're coming out from this oil spill that I guess was over 10 years ago, but they're yeah. saying now we're better. And uh, when you look at the numbers, and this is what I tell students, don't just take it at face value, what mm. organizations are saying. Look at the outcomes. So look at how much money comparatively to their whole, you know, their assets, how right. much they're putting into environmental issues or renewable energy. And when you look at a BP, it's actually a very small amount of their overall sure. uh, revenue. So Even if it's more than it was. Correct, still, correct. Yeah. And, and it's good to make incremental changes, sure. and, and we're moving in the right direction, but, <laughs> but you have to dig a little deeper when, when companies are well, saying they're doing things. So to be, to be cynical, um, can you invest? Like, we'll talk about ecologically sound stuff. Like, are there things that you can invest in that are kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say purely good, or but like absolutely in that direction? Uh, there's a lot of different levels. So um, investors have different ways of doing it. And the easiest way you can say we have a socially responsible fund mm -hmm. is to say we're not investing in companies we think are bad in certain areas. So, for example, I mean, early on, a lot of investment companies will screen out tobacco, firearms, sure. alcohol, things yeah. like that. We're not going to invest in those, right? And so when the socially responsible investments came forward, they said, okay, we're not going to invest in BP because mm. it's a polluter if we're right. going to focus on the environment, right? Uh, but more and more today, what 
a better, I think a stronger approach would be, is we're actually going to invest in companies that are doing the right things. So we're going to look at the companies that are actually trying to make a difference in the air, the winners in that industry that are maybe doing the best job at renewable energy, and we're mm-hmm. going to focus on those companies. So there's a, there's a lot of variation in how mutual funds do do socially responsible investing, and I think that's what the SEC is getting at. Okay. They're saying, we, we need to kind of understand how you're defining it, and right. so that the investor knows what they're buying when they buy into that. I, I just imagine that's incredibly complex because if, if I am a if I'm a fund manager and ICBP is making progress, I might say this is a good investment because they're moving forward. Whereas an investor might just hear me saying, you know, we're we're investing in companies that are making progress and that might be a a clever misunderstanding that can be used. Well, and I think that's the point, that the investor needs to know and there needs to be transparency about how different mutual funds are picking stocks and what, what process they go through. Oh, okay. I the, apologies for the digression. That's that's, that's right. really that's that's very fun to me. Um, the the next question we have for kind of your background that we want to know about is um, remind remind us where you went to school and where did you go to graduate school? So I went to Connecticut College for my undergrad, and then I went to Emory University mm-hmm. for graduate school. So, so I was in Atlanta for six years. <laughs> <laughs> so tell 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 us about that whole graduate process. How did you did you know what you were doing when you go when you went in? What was graduate school like for you? Um, I think I had an idea. So going in, I remember when I applied, I knew I wanted to study organizations and how organizations contributed to social and environmental causes in good ways because we we tend to think of businesses as bad, right? <laughs> like we talked about today. Yeah. Businesses pollute right. and. <laughs> Businesses cheat and businesses steal. And, you know, we think that. But there are actually really good things that businesses do that can change the world. And uh, so I had a basic idea, but I I was shaped by, um, you know, a couple of professors there. I worked very closely with a professor called called, uh, Matthew Archibald. And he was studying organizations actually more in healthcare, but looking at the same question, how can we enable access to healthcare through where we p- place organizations. And it was very interested in location. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, so it just made me think in different ways. And then I had uh, my, ended up being my uh, dissertation advisor, uh, Tim Dowd. He said, you know, you, you need to have something you know. Mm-hmm. So you have this idea that businesses can be good, but what do you know? And that's where... I turned back to the company that my family has, an investment company in upstate New York, and they've come from a very value-based approach from the beginning. More not so, they don't have an investment vehicle that's socially responsible in terms of a mutual fund. However, the way they treat their employees, the way they're Mm -hmm. involved in their community, the way um, they're giving back, and how they think of clients as serving a need rather than making them a lot of money. And so I had that, and so that was something that I came back to um, at Emory. Yeah, I I really want to cycle back to that, the the organizations as a force for good. I Mm -hmm. I definitely want to come back to that, but I don't want to leave grad school quite yet because one of the reasons I focus on this a lot is many of our students are thinking about whether or not they should go to grad school. And the stories I think people get about grad school can be either horrifically just a, a terrifying story or, you know, there, there are a lot of rumors to disperse about graduate school. Yep. So for you personally, like, were you ready for graduate school? How did the, how did the, the courses work? And, and we'll get to writing the dissertation yeah. as well. So, I mean, one thing I tell our students is I think it's really important to take a break. So if I hadn't gone and worked for two years in a law firm, I would have had a completely you know, a different career trajectory. So if I had gone directly into law school, I would mm-hmm. have done that and become a lawyer. And, you know, and so taking time to do something, sometimes knowing what you aren't going to do is as yeah. important as knowing what you are yeah. going to do. Um, I would also say that the process of applying to graduate school just probably is similarly to applying to undergrad. <laughs> it's very stressful. Um but it's it's kind of like it's okay. Failure is okay, and 
And that's one thing, you know, sometimes we fail, often we fail, right? I fail all the time. And it's okay. I remember I really wanted to go to Duke, mm -hmm. uh, to Duke University. Uh, my husband and I had just met. He had gone to Duke. And so I thought, well, I'll go to Duke and we'll move to Durham and mm -hmm. live there. And I remember getting that rejection letter and going into my office at the law firm and shutting the door and just <laughs> crying. I mean, I was so upset, mm. but it turned out that Emory was a great place for me. Yeah. Um, I had great mentors and I met great friends and I really was able to, not that I wouldn't, maybe I would have had it at Duke, I don't know, yeah. but there are lots of paths for yeah. our students. And I think not getting yourself set and I have to do this and I have to go here and I have to do this program we can kind of find our way in, in a lot of different places. I, I, I love the, you know, the, the embracement, embracer of, of failure because I am, I'm a big proselytizer of that as well. I, I, don't, I don't think you can become flexible. I don't think you can become like able to maneuver in different spaces without failing very badly and yeah. having to overcome that. Mm -hmm. um, not, not that Emory is some failure. Yeah. That's, that's certainly a great yeah. place. But um, yeah, I... I Sometimes it's hard to talk about this, especially to, to students, because it's, it's, it's difficult to hear. But failure, I think, really is necessary yeah, uh, to move forward. So, I agree. <laughs> so that makes me happy. So how about, how about the, um, the dissertation writing process? Had you written anything that, that, that big before? How did that, whole, how did so that go I'm, for you? In undergrad, I wrote a senior thesis. Mm -hmm. um, and I tended to take classes that were writing and so as a as a result all my classes are writing classes for better <laughs> or worse um, but I had written I think a fair amount obviously a dissertation is a lot bigger thing yeah I remember the writing process and I tell my students this when they're doing their capstone you have to do it <laughs> it's like you have to do the work and it's not fun but sometimes you just have to sit down for five yeah. hours and write yeah. and I, I was actually in graduate school. I had um, both of my children was when I was in graduate school. And I remember it was my last year. My son was born in October, and I just said, I have to get it done. Like, I have to be done. <laughs> and so I my husband would come home from work, and I'd pass off the children, and he'd <laughs> take them somewhere, and I would just write, write, write. And he'd even, you know, he'd put them to bed, and I'd write. But that's the thing is with writing – it's the repetitive, you just yeah. have to do it, right? And I also tell students, I tell my daughter this too, you have an idea in your head, you go to sleep, and in the morning it's worked itself out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible, mm -hmm. and uh, the mind is really neat in that way. So once you get in the practice of writing, it gets easier. Right. And that's actually another painful lesson because before you go to sleep when you have the unresolved problem that you're writing on, you still have to push, even if it's not happening, even if you think maybe tomorrow it'll be resolved. But if you don't do that work, if you don't bang your head against the wall yeah. enough, it's not going to be resolved. Yeah. You're... Well, and the other thing is, so when our students are writing their uh, capstones, there are other things you can do when you hit a block, right? Mm -hmm. So you hit a block in the chapter and you can't think of how to work it out. I tell students, well, then work on a visual. Work on your yep. table yep. of contents. Work on your reference section. You're still working. And your mind's still working, yeah. right? And so you can get away from that thing that's causing you so much frustration right. and really focus on something else yeah. for the time that you need to keep working. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the last thing on this, on the history section that I want to ask that, that you mentioned um, also because it's something that I believe in very strongly is the break between undergraduate and graduate school, going out and getting a job, going out and, you know, um, moving through the world a little bit. Um, are are do you push that for your students? Do you do you do you, do you see the effects of that? Because I I'm I'm setting this up as an easy because yeah. I see it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, a number of our students want to become consultants, mm -hmm. and I kind of always push back a little bit on them, and I say I think that's great. It's a good career path, but when you're a consultant, you're an expert, yep. and you're telling organizations how to do X Y Z, right? And you, no offense, like I'm a great professor and I've taught you a lot of things, but you don't know how to do yeah, X, Y, Z yeah. yet. Right. 
And so sometimes going out and getting that career experience helps. And then if you're going to go to grad school, the same thing, like going out and getting an experience and really thinking about. Yeah. So when you jump into that commitment, you just have a clear idea. Yeah. And, and also, it's a, I think it comes back to the flexibility thing as well, because if we can make you experts in small things here, we can make you experts in critical thinking, we can give you kind of the foundation blocks, but to, to really excel, you need that practical yeah. work. And, and the first job you get, I always tell my students, the first job you get, you're going to have to relearn everything that you thought you knew because each corporation, each, each entity is going to need you in a slightly different way, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that can also be dispiriting <laughs> for yeah. some students. But it's good. Yeah. It's progress, right? Well, and, you know, any job, you get experience, and you might find out that you love that job, and you end up, that's your new career path, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I just don't, I don't think that there's any wrong way to learn and mm -hmm. to jump in. And sometimes I just think, take a minute, step back, get some experience, take all that critical thinking and apply it, and then make another decision. Your first job isn't your last job. Right. <laughs> well, especially now, right? Yeah. It, 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 I mean, I'm old enough to remember that it used to be you could have a one, a one job career. But. Mm -hmm. So let, let's take a, a quick pause here and move into um, our next section. So for the, the next section, I want to talk a little bit uh, about, about your teaching strategies and your teaching philosophy. So just in a very kind of meta way, how do you see teaching as, as part of, of you as a professor? Yeah, and so we all, I think it's great to be at a college where we all have different teaching styles and seeing even in my department, we all have different ways that we teach. That's really good for any student to be able to learn how to learn in different mm -hmm. ways. Um, but I would say that my style is very active. Mm -hmm. I say we're going to move. We're not <laughs> just going to sit there and you're going to stare at me and I'm going to parrot to you. That's just not my style. <laughs> um, and I have some students in valuations who say, I wish you did more yeah. of that. You know, so it's a, it's a balance. But we do a lot of working and group work and I make sure students are talking every single class, every single student should be talking. So if you're reporting out on something or if you're asking a question, um, even it, it, in that small group, that might be the way that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And my so I, the main course I teach is strategic management, and that's yeah. required for all of our majors. And in that class, it's a lot about how do you compete? So businesses, mm. how do businesses compete? Yeah. So it's fun because we can do a lot of competitions. Right. So we can <laughs> do games and we can do, and then we can think about how would this apply to organizations? Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoy that, um, being able to get students to think through doing games and competition. Mm -hmm. So you can set them up against each other and step back and kind of watch how, mm -hmm. they're, how they're competing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how does a class look like? We'll take your, your, uh, the one you just mentioned. Like what, is a, what does a day in that class look like? Um, so, well, uh, I'll take today. You know, <laughs> I just taught today. Um, typically, we start out, we, one other thing I do in my class and in business management we tend to do is try to connect whatever the topic is to what's going on in the real world, mm -hmm. right? So um, I often start off with a question, okay, so what's going on in the real world? And I encourage students, we have a weekly assignment where they have to write that out so mm -hmm. they're already thinking about it. Um, so we talk about that, so what, what happened today, and then how does that apply to what we're going to talk about today in class or what you've read, mm -hmm. right? And how, how do we make those connections? So that's that's one thing I usually start off with. I also have, during COVID, I did this thing that I adopted that I've kept, and I really like it. So once a week, we do a show and tell, mm -hmm. I call them, and it usually has nothing to do with the topic of the day. Yeah. So that's just a way, let's just talk, let's just get to know each other, mm -hmm. right? Because that's really important too, to, because my class is so interactive and students have to work with each other, right. it's good they know each other. So yeah. we do like a, bring a picture of your pet day, mm -hmm. you know, or what's the, the way you take your coffee? It can be <laughs> anything, what's your favorite movie? It, it really doesn't matter what right. it is, but we learn a little bit about each other. So usually in the first, 
little bit of class, we do some sort of that interactive mm -hmm. sharing. And then there will be usually a little bit of a lecture piece where I say, okay, here are some of the topics, yeah. the definitions. And then we tend to break into group work to apply mm -hmm. some of what, what we've learned. Um, so it's usually some combination of those things. Because I, I, there's a, another thing that I, I really think it's worth kind of doubling down on. It, it's amazing the difference between a classroom where everybody is bought in and everybody kind of that, that community of learning kind of works compared to a classroom where the people don't know each other and they're not really interested in knowing each other. It, it's I think a lot of teachers generally, I think we forget about it's a social thing. Mm -hmm. and, and even if you do have a lecture style class, right, if the students know each other and they're and they're engaged and they're willing to work with the class, it makes a huge difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. And it also helps to identify when students are going through different mm -hmm. challenges in the semester because you already know them and you know how they typically interact or share out. And then if it's different, yeah. you kind of say, oh, well, I should follow up. Yeah. And find out what's going on. So you also mentioned that the, you have your students kind of looking at the news of the day and, and what's going on. Um, and, I, and I love this idea. How do you see your students um, interacting with the news? I, I'm always kind of interested. Some students are very, they're news hounds, and some students don't really seem to care at all. So how do, you, how do your students, how do you see your students yeah. interacting with the news? So this is something that's changed over time. So when I first came here, I, I had been working in a graduate program with mostly adults who were working and then mm. going to school. And so when we I would talk about the news, they would have read the newspaper. Yeah. And I remember <laughs> one of the first classes here, I said, okay, what's happened in the what's going on in the news today or this mm. week? And I just got a lot of blank stares. <laughs> and so I, I realized, okay, they haven't read it. So then we've worked on it over time. So one thing in business management, in many of our classes, we require them to read the Wall Street Journal every day. Mm -hmm. And I tell students, that doesn't mean you're going to read from front to back, right? <laughs> like, we give them tools. This is what right. you need to be looking for. And maybe read these two articles based mm -hmm. on, you know. But have something yeah. and have that knowledge. And I found I used to really like just kind of the idea of trust and having students want to learn for the sake of learning mm -hmm. because I think that was my style maybe but i've re i've recognized that sometimes students they have so much going on yeah they need to say i have to do xyz before class and so i'm a little bit better about preparing them so mm -hmm. that we can have that discussion when yeah. they get into class <laughs> that's that's another another um, issue that i've felt very strongly is students aren't always similar to the geek that became a professor, right? Right, And so it's, it's sometimes, well, don't you want to read a five-volume <laughs> Chinese novel? I mean, that seems, of so course we funny. do, right? <laughs> so um, the, the kind of wrapping up this chunk of the teaching part, is a, just a couple uh, questions here. Do you have themes that kind of run through all of your classes? Do you have ideas that you're you're always trying to reinforce within students, whether it's in a first-year seminar or in the, the senior capstone stuff? Yeah, I think it's that thing I talked about earlier, sort of the power of organizations to shape the world. Mm -hmm. And so I teach intro to nonprofit management, for example, mm -hmm. and we talk about that in the nonprofits. So how can nonprofits be more effective, you know, and successful at reaching those goals that they've set in yeah. terms of, whatever their mission is. But then it translates to for-profit organizations mm -hmm. and how they can do that as well and how they can think about their different stakeholders in a way to try to create gains for them and improvements for society mm -hmm. as well as, okay, we're going to make a lot of money. Right. Um, and, and I think that's one thing I sort of push our students to think critically about is that the, bit, the sole purpose of business is not to make money. I really mm -hmm. push that. And <laughs> some of our economists might think differently. But it's really to fulfill needs and to mm -hmm. fulfill needs for stakeholders and to be in business. Like in 10 years for that business to still be in business. Right. And businesses can't do that if they don't adapt and they don't think about how their stakeholders are changing and how their needs and their wants and their employees might change. Yeah. And so 
that is a theme, the stakeholder thinking more broadly about who you're serving mm-hmm. and then what the purpose of an organization is. It's not really just to make money. It's to make differences that are sustainable over time. So that actually gets to the final question I was going to ask, and maybe you could just add a little bit on this. For a student who, who graduates from your program, who's gone through all of your classes, what what do you hope that they've gained? What what kind of person is graduating from Washington College having gone through your classes? In in your in your idealist hope. Yeah, um so one thing I will do next week is I've given students a task to think about where they see themselves in fifteen years. And I want our students to be able to say, I'm going to be the CEO of this company, or I'm going to be the head of sales, or I'm going to, you know, whatever they're going to be. So have that goal. But I want them to think of, and then what else? Um, One thing we really focus on in business management is find your purpose and transform the world with whatever that purpose is, whatever you're passionate about. And I think our students are going to go do amazing things. Mm And being an accountant means you can also be an accountant in a way that's finding those sort of ethical or unethical sort of Mm -hmm. tensions and really trying to be more successful in communicating, for example, to different people so that they understand what the accounting system is. And I I feel very strongly that our students are going to be able to go out and do that. So they're going to be leaders in whatever they end up doing. That's brilliant. I, I, I love that idea. No, no matter where you end up, there is a place for you to do make things better yep. wherever you end up. Right. That, I like that a lot. <laughs> so let's take a, a quick break here and come back and talk about your uh, research. Okay, so um, we, we've danced on this a couple different times already, and I, I just want to kind of give you a stage to talk about how do you make an organization shift so that it's doing good? Yeah, I think it's really hard. So if we think about organizational culture, Warren Buffett is like one of the <laughs> you know most successful people in the world, right? He's very smart. And at his uh, shareholder meeting for Berkshire Hathaway one year, he got this question from, he gets, you know, in this huge arena, he gets this question from this young man who said, you know, I'm really, really like what I'm doing. You know, I like my job, but I just don't like the culture of the organization. And he wasn't even talking about being socially responsible. (laughs) He's like, I don't like it. So what should I do? And I remember Warren Buffett saying, well, you need to leave like because culture is very hard to change yeah and so this is um one of the challenges right so to take a culture that's not ethical or not socially responsible or doesn't think about those broader stakeholders to change it into a culture that does i'm not saying that that's easy it's certainly not an overnight type of thing however i think that the more and more we can communicate to organizations that it's in their best interest Mm. to be socially responsible, to look out for stakeholder needs, the more likely they're going to start to incorporate that idea. So we talk a lot about in my classes and also in my research about how we can have tangible benefits to thinking about our employees, okay? Mm. You know, take our employees for that's one type of stakeholder. So if we treat them well, if we give them a good benefits package and time off and, mm-hmm. and we support them and there's a caring environment, we as an organization, if we think selfishly, are going to have rewards, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to be more productive. Right. They're going to speak more highly of the organization. right? And those can translate into profit-centric goals. Right, right. And so I think sometimes we have to think about the language Um, that we're using and use the same language. So if that's what you're interested in, if you want to get your quarterly returns Mm -hmm. or whatever, how can you do that in ways that enhance the well-being of the stakeholders and of the environment? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's that's something that I think strongly about. There there was, um, and again, I'm very much an outsider, but I remember a story from 
the pre-COVID days of a, of a company, I think it was in the Pacific Northwest somewhere, where the CEO took a massive cut and he raised all of the, uh, um, every one of his workers, I think there was a floor of like a fifty or $60,000 salary or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was touted, everyone said he was going to fail, but it, it didn't fail. And so I kind of want to get at it from that angle is, can you make that kind of like fundamental change from a leadership like new leadership or someone coming in to change or does it need to be like from both ends from the top and bottom i think i mean i think a lot of things need to be communicated so i'm definitely not a leadership scholar in the sense that i think that there are these great leaders that can come in and make change and make everything better i think it's more the leadership working with the culture where Mm -hmm. we have the most effective long lasting change uh, but certainly, leadership can reinforce culture. Right. Um, leadership can say, so I imagine, I don't know if that was a Salesforce. Or, I, I, I don't remember that. Anyway, yeah. I don't remember the organization either. But, you know, I imagine the culture already, the values of that organization were probably already supportive of that decision. Because... Mm-hmm. In order to be successful, you need to create sort of this foundation. Right. And so I do think that leadership and culture go hand in hand. Uh, but I don't think it's an either or. Yeah. I think yeah, it's a yeah. both. Yeah. yeah. So and, and kind of leading on that, too, you know, salary is obviously important for the employees, for that for that mm-hmm. stakeholder group. But how do you how does a good organization address intangibles and like. Uh, making your employees comfortable or the the tech bro standard thing, you know, having cereal available for them and massage parlors and stuff like that. Like how, how, well, yeah. So there's a whole, you could take, I tell my students, you can take whole courses on incentives and rewards <laughs> and human resources management. And, you know, that's not, that's not actually my area, but I do teach that in strategic management. We talk about you have to think about your employee base mm-hmm. and what their their biggest needs and wants are. So we talk about Google campuses a lot. Oh, right. I mean, Google campuses, they've got it all, right? The massage, <laughs> the pet right. grooming, the yeah. child care. And I, I have students think critically, like, would you like to work there? And they say, oh, yeah, it sounds, free food, it sounds great. I said, okay, well, do you think I would like to work there? Because I'm, I've gotten a little older, right? Yeah. So... Uh, it's tailored, right, mm-hmm. to a certain population yeah. that doesn't have a family, mm-hmm. right, who can work long hours and maybe work well into the night and mm-hmm. they want to stay there, right? That's why they offer all those incentives. So it works for some, right. but you have to think about who's my target in terms of my employee yeah. uh, and what are they asking for. So there's there's lots of surveys that have been done that look at incentives and employers think their employees want certain things. Mm -hmm. And obviously pay is one of the highest ones. But one of the things they rate very low is the ability to feel in on things or to be part of things. Like Mm -hmm. they don't think employees care about that. This was a study I think that was done by Stanford. And employees asked the same question, rated that pretty high. Mm -hmm. So the challenge is really making sure you know your employees and you know what they care about. Because if you set up a structure that isn't going to attract the employees, that's your goal, right? If you think from the business sense, you want the top performing employees. So So if you give them a ping pong table, but no one wants to play ping pong. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I, just another kind of thing to, to finish off that chunk of it is you've talked several times about stakeholders, and I'm trying to have that kind of clear in my mind. Obviously, um, employees are a, a major stakeholder. Who are the other people that you need to that organizations need to be keeping in touch with and, and reaching out to? Yeah, I mean, it depends. You know, it depends where you are. But if we take, let's just take Washington College, mm-hmm. right? Like we're sort of a business. <laughs> and so Washington College has several stakeholders. They have students, they have employees, and you can break those apart, right? There's different types of employees and faculty. And then you have administration. You've got to think about Chestertown, mm-hmm. right? You have the community. Um, we think of actually the natural environment as a stakeholder. So even uh, though yeah, they're not a yeah. person, but we have to think about how we're interacting with the natural environment and what are we doing to harm or help. Mm-hmm. Um, other stakeholders, right, our suppliers, our, 
uh, people we contract with, mm -hmm. our board of directors, our visitors and governors. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a lot of different stakeholders. And depending on whatever the issue is that that organization is thinking about, they might focus on certain stakeholders right. over others. So if, um, if we take Walt Disney, for example, and they're thinking of raising their ticket prices. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of sort of in the news about yeah. they've been raising their ticket <laughs> prices. Right? They're going to be thinking about, okay, who are our customers? Mm -hmm. Who's going to care? Are we still going to have the demand? Right. But they also might think about their employees in terms of how does that filter down mm -hmm. to our employees? Is that going to help raise their wages right. or not? And so it really will depend on the issue. So there will might be that issue of raising prices. And then Walt Disney might be thinking about um, opening a new theme park. We're just thinking of it as theme parks, you know, in Arizona, mm -hmm. right? And then they're going to have to think about completely different stakeholders, like the right. community, the right. government. Will yeah. they allow it? Think that. Well, so th so this kind of shifts nicely into into the idea of corporate social responsibility. You know, your 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 class title. So maybe just sticking with Disney because that's such a fascinating <laughs> conglomerate. Yeah. Yep. What, how, how can a corporate, how can a corporate entity be considered socially responsible? What could Disney do or what are they doing, as far as you know, yeah. to be responsible? So Disney is an interesting story. So one thing I say to my students is we tend to think that social you're going to be responsible in every area. Mm. And we do have examples of companies that do that. So some of my research focuses on B Corps which are corporations that make explicit commitments to social mm. and environmental goals. And they agree to be audited by external nonprofits to show that they're doing that. Right? So those types of companies, Patagonia, for example, mm -hmm. is opening themselves up to that transparency throughout their process. Walt Disney um, is a corporation, right? First of all, it has all these different divisions. So we have streaming, we right, have theme yeah. parks, we have retail, all these, you know, um, the the movies. So we have all these different areas. So you have to think about Disney would have to take any one of those businesses and think about all of the different ways that they impact stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And it's really more about stakeholder management, we call it, is really more about thinking through strategic decisions in light of who are we impacting. Mm -hmm. So it's not, there's yeah. not a one cookie cutter size approach or one size fits right. all. It's in every decision we make, making sure we're thinking about who this could impact. And we're not always gonna make everyone happy. Right. And we recognize that. But what are ways we can communicate and be clear and transparent so that those maybe who will disagree with the outcome will still understand why that decision yeah. was made. And so it seems to me the problem is if it's gonna be a kind of an every level of management issue, it's training up every level of management, right? Mm -hmm. To have make sure every level of management is doing their best to see all of those impacts. Yeah, and, and it gets more and more complicated the bigger an organization sure. yeah. gets, right? Yeah. Um, when you have, that's, you have, you know, the Wells Fargo's of the world where they had, you know, a lot of unethical practices going on and, and management wasn't aware of it at first, right? right? It took a while for it to yeah. rise to the top. Now management was held responsible for that. Um, but when you have a big organization, that's where this cultural piece comes in. Right. You really, it's not only training, but creating, these are our value system. This is our mission. This is what yeah. we believe in. This is how we treat people. And, and you know, <laughs> to wrap this back, it's it's like the classroom. If If everyone's on board and everyone's engaged, then things move more smoothly. But if you have kind of cruft in certain management areas that they're not entirely bought in, that must be a nightmare to try to, to clean out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's um, I remember when I worked at University of Maryland Eastern Shore, I had a student who wrote her dissertation on sense making. Mm -hmm. So when you have a message, and she was very interested at the middle manager level, how do you make sense of that? Mm -hmm. Right. And how do middle managers come together so they can say, okay, this is a directive or something that's been... How do we translate that yeah. so it still has the same intent? Yeah. And it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, kind of wrapping up this, the research part of things, 
Um, what's next? What are you working on now? What are you excited about moving forward with your research? Yeah, so one of the things I've loved the most at Washington College has been working with students. And so I've had, I think, three different sets of students that I've worked with on my research over time. Um, one group I worked with on a case study that we got published last year. Um, so I'm really excited about being able to kind of work with students on something that is sort of a combined interest, yeah. something that they care about, maybe in my corporate social responsibility class that they thought of, and then something that I'm interested in bringing those together, because that's been a really valuable to create a case study that then I can use in the classroom, others can use in the classroom, yeah. that comes from Washington College. It's, it's yeah. pretty cool. Um, so that's something I'm really excited about continuing to do. Um, and then I'm continuing my work and looking at B Corps and looking at those those organizations that really exemplify. Mm -hmm. So these are for-profit organizations that exemplify their commitment to social and environment co environmental causes. I'm interested in why they make those decisions to do yeah. that. Like, where is that coming from? And what types of structures enable social responsibility to happen? So uh, just on those B Corps, you mentioned that they they explicitly like kind of allow themselves to be audited mm -hmm. to, to be transparent. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you were talking about? What, like the SEC was looking at trying to audit these mutual funds to see if. Yeah. Is that kind of what the SEC of, wants to do? Yeah. It's sort of like in a different way. Right. So one is the government's right, we're right. going to come in. Right. And one is organizations opening themselves up to uh, it's a nonprofit. It's called right. um, B Lab, uh -huh. and that organization then audits okay. um, every three years. Are you doing what you said you were doing, basically? And you have to fill out an assessment. This is in right. all these different areas. So it's similar, um, but it's just coming from different places. Right. One's coming from the government, and one's coming from nonprofits. Yeah, I I think that that idea of of auditing is is really fascinating to me because, like like you say with this B course, that that must take a lot of confidence. And a lot of like, you really understand what you are to be able to stand to stand up and say, you know, here's all the here's all the material, yeah. find the problems. Yeah. Um, where obviously maybe the SCE might not be as welcome. <laughs> right. Well, and that's that's kind of the point is that the organizations who are B Corps, they've made a commitment right. that we want to improve. It's yeah. a continual improvement. Also, it's not at one time, in one point in time we get this and then we're done right it's that every three years we're going to continue to improve yeah. um yeah and that ce is doing it more from a regulatory approach right? Right. making sure you're doing what you say you're doing yeah. and if not then you, you know who knows right. what will happen yeah well and the last last little thing on there i wanted to just um again kind of re-emphasize the uh i, I saw the the co-authored um uh publication you had and i didn't realize that was the uh, student you had done the 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 publication with right yeah that's that's really fascinating because we, we do try to do a lot of research with students, but it very rarely gets to the, the public publishable uh, right. stage. Mm -hmm. So can you tell a little bit about like how it was working with that student and like how it was to get that published? So I worked with two students, Maura West and Olivia Portera. And what I what I had done is I was teaching corporate social responsibility and I realized that there wasn't a good article out there that showed students this is how you do stakeholder management mm. and so i said well maybe i should write a case study about it and that would help you know and then i said well two of my students really excelled in this area mm -hmm. so i went back to actually the papers that we had written on stakeholder analysis and i looked for student the two students if I had students that really grasped the subject, right? Mm -hmm. And I found that both uh, Maura and Olivia had. And so I reached out to them and I said, I think I'm going to work on this this summer. This is something you're interested in. Mm -hmm. And so they were. So I just um, really, it came out of that. We worked back and forth and they both contributed a lot to the final result. So I was, we were able to publish it together. See, that's brilliant because one of the things we always say is like the um, the capstone thesis that folks write at Washington College is, is really important and you, you don't get that at every college. But I don't think – there virtually no one actually gets a, a co-published paper right. from an undergraduate. That That's, yeah. that's amazing and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I thought it was great. <laughs> so.
So the the last little chunk here are um, just a couple of rapid fire, quick, silly questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you weren't a professor, what would you be? Yeah. So I I actually talk about this in my neighborhood a lot. Um, so I would be a florist. Oh, that's great. Uh, or yeah, some I really like fresh cut flowers uh-huh. and arranging them. So I try to during the summer take flowers from my garden every Sunday and just kind of make little arrangements and put them around the house. So. Oh, that's outstanding. So yeah. what's your best flower that grows around in your yard? So my zinnias. I yeah. really, I'm always really proud of my zinnias. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so next question. If you had to sing one song karaoke style in front of your class, what would it be? So I think it's funny because I've actually sort of done this. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the show and tells I've done before is your favorite song. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's this song, and I'm not going to remember who sings it, but it's called I've Got Bills. Uh-huh. Um, someone Lewis. It's like C Money Lewis or something. But anyway, it's, it's not a song, but it's just this great song that's like peppy yeah. and it makes you want to do kind of like that Justin Timberlake song. It's similar to, yeah. you know, so that would be get everybody song. moving in the classroom. I think his name is Lunch Money Lewis. Yes, that's brilliant. Names, I've got bills. I will look that up. <laughs> and then finally, one of the other things I, I wanted to come back about the the critical importance of, of having people around you who are supportive. And you mentioned that you were able to hand the children off to your partner to, to get the dissertation done. And I think that's worth celebrating in a lot of different ways, mm. having people around you that can, can take the kids mm. or just be supportive. Mm-hmm. But the question I have here, um, aside from saying yay to your partner, mm-hmm. but the question I have here is just tell me two random things about the, the, the people or animals that live in your home. Okay. So one of my, my favorite story is, so I have a cat, a three-legged cat named Augie. And he's truly a cat who has nine lives because he lost his leg. And uh, and he also got attacked by a dog this summer. Oh, my God. But I got Augie from Lansing Williams. Mm-hmm. So he was a county professor who's retired. And he fosters a lot of animals. So he tugged at my heartstrings because he said, bring your daughter. And so, <laughs> so we got Augie. And uh, so oh. he's a great little addition to the family. Um, what else? So I, I talk a lot about my kids in class. I think mm-hmm. my students, for better or worse, they just learn a lot of things. <laughs> like you learn how a 14-year-old girl is, you know, going through temper tantrums or this or that. Um, but, yeah, my kids are a big part of Kind of everything. So I have a, uh, my daughter Lucy's fourteen, and then my son Thomas is twelve. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I'm impressed that you get anything done at all. That's <laughs> yeah. that's that's a rough time. They're, they're kind of on the. I feel like like they're raising themselves at this point. <laughs> like every once in a while, I'll you know have a big conversation with them, but. <laughs> Excellent. So those are my questions. Thank you so very much for coming and talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. And thank you for listening. I am confirmed in my earlier guess that I would just want to keep on talking well beyond the time we have scheduled. Uh, I do hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It really is great to hear what people are doing all the way on the other side of campus from my office. So this has been Flock to Faculty. Thank you so much for listening.